Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes 12. We're going to be concluding this series entitled Vexed, appropriately named because life itself is puzzling. It's vexing, it's unpredictable, it's unjust, and at times life is absolutely maddening. This is a central theme that we've been looking at throughout this book. It's the topic the the author has been wrestling with, and he's been trying to find a solution. What's the solution to this vexing life, this unpredictable life? He has tried pleasure, he's tried laughter, wine, advancement, success, and they have all come up short in solving the riddle that is life under the sun. Last week, we looked at the professor's concern that there's a way in which we can participate in church that makes it every bit as meaningless as trying to find satisfaction in the local bar. And after all this, you might think that this author doesn't see anything valuable in what is earthly. Maybe you'd think that this professor would just say, you know, life is a waste, you might as well just figure out a way to cope with it until the next life is inaugurated. But actually, the author doesn't do that. There's a whole string of passages in this book that we've not really touched on, and I want to read those before we get into this last section of Ecclesiastes. I want to read some of these verses to you to show you that the professor really does value the stuff of life. And then we can take a look at how we can engage with those things in a meaningful way. Chapter 2, verses 24 to 25 says this, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment. Chapter 3, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. Chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, this is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. Chapter 8, so I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. So you see, the professor is not saying that this life is a waste and we should just learn to bide our time until the next life dawns. He's actually saying there's enjoyment to be found in this life. Enjoying the things of life, enjoying the stuff of life is a gift from God. That's what he's saying. But enjoying the stuff of life is to be moderated with the professor's overarching concern, and that is the stuff of life is not going to make you content. It's not going to give you a deep sense of rest and peace. He is walking a very fine middle road here. To enjoy food and drink and and your career, that's a gift from God. But don't expect it to offer you the good life. If you expect food and drink and career and recreation, all this stuff to give you the good life, you will find this life to be maddening. This is what the professor is driving at. So to conclude this series, there are a couple of residual questions left out there for us to think about. 
The first is, how do I, how do I enjoy the stuff of life without expecting it to give me the good life? That's the first question we have to wrestle with. How do I, if the professor is saying to enjoy the stuff of life is a gift from God, that we shouldn't run away from it, that we should just turn our minds toward heaven and forget this life, bide our time, cope with it. If he's saying we should enjoy the stuff of life, how do we do that without expecting it to give us the good life? And then the second question is, we still don't know the answer to the question, where's the good life to be found? We've not figured that out yet either. Those are the two residual questions that we need to wrestle with. I'm going to contend today that the key that unlocks the door containing the answers to those two questions is found in the final section of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. So let me read that. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So if we're going to find appropriate enjoyment of this life, the gifts of life, food and drink and recreation and career, if we're going to find appropriate enjoyment of this life and at the same time find some semblance of the good life, we need to do three things. We need to embrace the prodding of Scripture we need to fear and obey God, and we need to prepare for the judgment to come. If we're going to find appropriate enjoyment of this life, embracing the good gifts that God has given us in our earthly existence here, if we're going to find appropriate enjoyment of that, and at the same time find some semblance of the good life. We need to embrace the prodding of Scripture, fear and obey God, and prepare for the judgment to come. Let's look at each of these. First, we need to embrace the prodding of Scripture. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 11 and 12a, the words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. The word goads is a good vocabulary word of the day. A goad was a wooden rod with an iron point used to prod oxen into action. It's a cattle prod. A goad is a cattle prod. It was a necessary tool in the shepherd's hands in the ancient world in order to get the oxen doing what they were supposed to be doing, moving in the direction they were supposed to be moving. Needless to say, it wasn't a pleasant experience for the ox. No ox looked forward to being prodded by a goad. The professor is saying the words of the wise are like goads. Helpful, necessary, productive, but unpleasant, and even painful. Sometimes we have a romanticized view 
of studying the scriptures, as if each encounter we have with them is supposed to be pleasurable. The imagery the professor employs here would suggest otherwise. There will be times when, like an ox receiving the sharp end of a goad, we will receive the sharp end of scripture and we will think to ourselves, well, that's not particularly enjoyable to hear. That doesn't give me warm fuzzies. Now, probably the professor has in mind immediately the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is one big goad. It's a cattle prod. There are uncomfortable truths that poke at us in this book. Let me remind you of a few of them. Chapter 1, verse 11. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. You will be forgotten. That's a goad. That's a cattle prod. But if we're going to appropriately enjoy this life and find some semblance of the good life, that goad needs to be embraced. Chapter 2, verse 18. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. So many people work very hard over the course of their lifetime and their careers But then the day comes when they have to set aside their work, and oftentimes that has to be entrusted to somebody else who's going to do something different with it than they did. That's hard to do. But it's a goad. It pokes at us, it rubs us the wrong way. But if we're going to find some semblance of the good life, we're going to enjoy this life appropriately, we we need to embrace that. Chapter 5, verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. It's a goad. Chapter 7, verse 10, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. That's a goad. The implication is it's the fool who sees the old days as better than these. I find myself looking at parts of my past, glorifying them as if they were better than these current days. It is not wise to go there. The wise person does not ask, why were the good old days better than these? Chapter 8, verse 8, as no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power of the time of their death. You talk about a goad. Nobody likes this idea. I don't control my destiny. I don't control the timing of when I breathe my last. No. Ecclesiastes is one big goad. It's a cattle prod. What God has to say to us is not always convenient. It doesn't always translate into warm fuzzies. It's not always pleasurable to hear. But if we're going to appropriately enjoy this life, and find some semblance of the good life, we need to learn to embrace the prodding of Scripture. God has to be able to tell us things we don't want to hear. Rico Tice tells an amusing story that illustrates this well. He writes, I was once in Australia visiting a friend. He took me to a beach on Botany Bay, so I decided to go for a swim. 
I was just taking off my shirt when he said, what are you doing? I'm going for a swim, I said. And he said, what about those signs? And he pointed me to some signs I'd not really noticed before. Danger. Sharks. With all the confidence of an Englishman, I said, don't be ridiculous. I'll be fine. He said, listen, mate. 200 people have died in shark attacks. You've got to decide whether those shark signs are there to save you or ruin your fun. You've got to decide whether those shark signs are there to save you or to ruin your fun. Are the goads of Scripture, the unpleasant portions of Scripture, there to save you or to ruin your fun? No one remembers the former generations. Is that there to save you or is it there to ruin your fun? Do not say, why were the old days better than these? Is that there to save you or is that there to ruin your fun? No one has power over the time of their death. Is that there to save you or is that there to ruin your fun? Remember the two questions the professor is indirectly answering. He's showing us how to appropriately enjoy the gifts of life, the stuff of life, and he's also giving us a clue as to where the good life is found and embracing the painful parts of Scripture. When God is saying something to us we don't particularly want to hear, we need to learn to embrace that if we're going to find those things. One of the implications of this is that I just can't go back again and again and again to my favorite warm parts of Scripture. If I'm going to truly embrace the words of the wise, if I'm going to embrace the goads of Scripture, the prodding of Scripture, I can't just go back again and again and again to the places of Scripture that give me warm fuzzies. I have to search the whole thing out. The whole thing. I've got to go find the goads of Scripture. Um, one practical takeaway we're going to employ in our church starting this fall is we're going to begin a journey through the whole Bible. Genesis to Revelation. We're going to do a, a journey through the whole Bible. And everybody who comes through the doors on Sunday morning is going to be studying the same passage of Scripture from youngest to oldest. Down in Kingdom Kids, the, the student ministries area, this room, we're going to be studying the same passage of Scripture. We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to go all the way through Revelation. It, it could take four or more years for us to do this. But I find it very valuable for the church to be given exposure to the whole counsel of God. Because in so doing, we will unearth the goads that exist there. If we're going to find appropriate enjoyment in this life and find some semblance of the good life, we need to embrace the prodding of Scripture. Second, if we're going to appropriately enjoy this life and find some semblance of the good life, we need to fear and obey God. Verse 13, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. We're going to appropriately enjoy this life if we're going to make the most of this life and the enjoyment of it and then also find some semblance of the good life, a deep sense of satisfaction and contentment, we need to fear and obey God. Now, fear in the English language um, has taken on a little bit different meaning than the biblical writers probably intended it to be. Uh, in our world of haunted houses and horror movies, fear is the threat that lurks around every corner. 
That's not exactly what the biblical writers are driving at. Biblical fear is a very complex idea. Uh, just a, a way to get into this, let me offer a story. My, several years ago, my wife and I were watching the news on TV, and, and as, we were, as we were watching the news, um, I think the lights were down. We were in our basement or something like that, but it was dark, and TV was on watching the news, and a spider let itself down from the ceiling right in the line of sight of my wife in the TV. My wife doesn't like spiders. Uh, and of course, the, the, with the TV behind it and the light coming from the TV, it lit that spider up like a Christmas tree. And uh, as has become her M.O., she leapt from the couch with Superman-like reflexes, yet, out, yet let out a scream, and in that moment urged me to eradicate this arachnid from the face of the planet. I don't remember if I did or not. But I was thinking about that, and in that moment I thought, you know, I bet... If I told her, in this moment, as she's standing over here in the corner waiting for me to kill the spiders dangling from the sand, if I said to her, hey, babe, in 30 minutes, our flight leaves for Hawaii. Pack a bag, we're going. We could be 35,000 feet above the Pacific Ocean somewhere, and she'd still be thinking about that spider. We could be sitting on the beach, taking in the sun's warmth, listening to the soothing sounds of crashing waves. And she'd be thinking about that spider. It'd ruin it for her. Completely ruin it for her. This is what it means to fear. What it means to fear is, is the inability to do anything without reference to the thing you fear. It's to do everything in reference to the thing you fear. It's to think about God in everything. But to put it differently, it's to fear God is to keep God in your field of vision regardless of what you're doing. Regardless of where you're going, regardless of what you're saying, regardless of what you're thinking about. It's to keep God in your field of vision. In order to appropriately enjoy this life, to maximize the joy that God has embedded in this life and to find some semblance of the good life, we need to learn to keep God in our field of vision in whatever we do. Now the professor goes one step further. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. Obedience is necessary if we're going to appropriately enjoy this life and find some semblance of the good life. Now we're not being exhorted to obey God in order to earn God's approval. The book of Ecclesiastes was written to and for God's people. People who by grace were already in a covenant relationship with God. The obedience they were called to was to be done in response to God's grace, not in an attempt to merit it. But the call goes out. Fear and obey God. Doug Donald's quote on this is worth stating at length. He writes this, perhaps the terms fear and obey are not the terms we either expected or wanted to read at the end of Ecclesiastes. 
Modern people tend to find the words freedom instead of fear and independence instead of obedience easier to swallow. The words fear and obey sound so constricting. After all, we live and breathe and move and have our being in a made-to-order drive through culture. We like things done our way and done fast. Fat to skinny, dumb to smart, sad to happy, godless to godly, all with the snap of a finger, the push of a button, or the dial of a phone. God in our hearts, fast and easy. But the Word of God corrects our consumer Christianity and spoiled spirituality. The words fear and obey are the precise words that God wants us to reflect on and heed. Fearing God and obeying his commands are his solution. The only solution that truly satisfies. O'Donnell's last point is particularly important. Fearing God, keeping him in our field of vision and everything. And living in obedience in response to his grace is God's solution. To fear and obey God is God's solution to the problems raised in the book. If you want to find appropriate enjoyment in this life, fear and obey God. If you want to find some semblance of the good life, fear and obey God. Imagine we were going for a walk. We go to a nature preserve. We're walking through the woods. We go off the beaten path. And there in the middle of nowhere is a gizmo, some sort of gadget, some machine that none of us has ever seen before. And we look at it kind of puzzled, wondering, what is this thing? What if I was to say to you in that moment, hey, I have no idea what that is, but I know who invented it. Let me call him up and see if he'll come out here and show us what this thing is and does. So we do. Call up the inventor, inventor comes out, and he starts showing us the ins and outs of this thing how it's put together, what it's made of, what it does, how you operate it in such a way to maximize benefit to you. What if this gidget, this gasmo, this gizmo, this machine was life? Life itself. If you want to know how it's supposed to work, what it's made of, how you're supposed to operate it in such a way to maximize benefit to yourself, you would want to speak with the inventor. And here the inventor is saying, if you want to find appropriate enjoyment in this life, and you want to find some semblance of the good life, fear and obey God. Third, if you want to find appropriate enjoyment in this life and find some semblance of the good life, you need to prepare for the judgment to come. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. One of the New Testament parallel passages is 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Judgment day is coming. In order to experience appropriate enjoyment of this life, in order to maximize the joy God has hardwired into this life and find some semblance of the good life, we need to prepare for the judgment to come. That sentiment's not popular in our modern world. Modern people don't react positively to that. But the denial of divine judgment has been around almost as long as human beings have. 
Remember that conversation between Eve and the serpent in the garden? This interrogation was unfolding and and Eve said to the serpent, God told us not to eat from that tree. That tree, knowledge of good and evil, told us not to eat it because if we do, we will die. What did he say? You will not surely die. You will not surely die. Listen, the very first doctrine to be denied in the Bible is the doctrine of divine judgment. And that's been Satan's MO since that day. If he can get humanity to deny that there will ever be a divine judgment, an ultimate accounting, he's got them. Professor's saying, if you want to find appropriate enjoyment of God's good gifts in this life, find some semblance of the good life, you need to live with the end in view, you need to live with the future judgment to come in view. There you have it. Find appropriate enjoyment in this life to find some semblance of the good life, embrace the prodding of scripture, fear and obey God, and prepare for the judgment to come. Of course, the perfect example of someone who found appropriate enjoyment in this life and found some semblance of the good life is Jesus Christ himself. He's also the perfect example of someone who embraced the prodding of scripture, feared and obeyed God, and prepared for the judgment to come. Let's reflect on this as we come to the table. Think about this with me. That night in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus wrestled with God in prayer, in anguish over what lay ahead of him, Jesus prayed, if it, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But in the next breath, he prayed, even so, not my will but yours be done. What did Jesus receive in response to his prayer? He received a goad. He asked for the cup to pass, but got a goad instead. The goad was the will of God that Jesus be crucified. Crucifixion was God's response to Jesus' prayer. Jesus got a goad in response to his prayer. Sometimes embracing the prodding of Scripture will lead you to a cross where you must die. And the only way you're going to be able to embrace the goad of Scripture is to see Jesus embracing the goad of Scripture for you. Jesus embraced the prodding of God's word which resulted in his death for you. Can you embrace the prodding of scripture for him? In the Garden of Eden, the serpent convinced Adam and Eve of a number of lies. One of the lies the serpent got Eve to believe was this. If I obey God, I won't be happy. If I obey God about this tree business, I'll be miserable. It's 
One of the lies that Satan got Adam and Eve to believe, if we obey God about this tree stuff, the way he told us it was supposed to work out, then, then we're not going to be happy. We'll be miserable if we obey God. Jesus obeyed God and was miserable, but not for long. After Jesus obeyed God to the point of death, something extraordinary happened. The scriptures tell us, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus obeyed God and was miserable for a little while and then exalted to the highest place. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and humanity has been miserable ever since. So you tell me, is the path to appropriately enjoying this life and finding some semblance of the good life found in declaring our freedom and independence, or is it found in fearing and obeying God? The life of Christ is as clear an indicator as any. Finally, the cross of Christ is as clear an example as there is that there is such a thing as judgment. Luke 12 hints at the fact that Jesus lived his whole life knowing how it would end. The prospect of his future sufferings were, were a perpetual Gethsemane for him. But because of what Jesus has done for us, the judgment that awaits believers is different than the judgment that awaited Christ. God's justice against our sin landed fully on Christ. Jesus got what we deserved. On the cross, Jesus got what we deserved so that by faith we can get what he deserved. Thanks be to God, the judgment in our future is not a judgment of condemnation. It's a judgment of accountability where the Father will ask you, what did you do with the salvation I freely gave you through my son Jesus? In order to appropriately enjoy this life and to find some semblance of the good life, we need to embrace the prodding of scripture, we need to fear and obey God, and we need to prepare for the judgment to come and I would say to you, look to Christ for all of those. And you will have all the direction and inspiration you'll need. Let's pray. Loving Father, tenderize our hearts to be receptive to things you want to say to us that may be difficult for us to swallow. Show us Christ, who is our ultimate example. Embracing the prodding of Scripture for our good, for our salvation. I pray in response to that, we would embrace the prodding of Scripture for His glory. Show us how to keep you in our field of vision, God, whether we're eating dinner, parenting, or working a job. By your spirit, God, convince us that fearing you and obeying you is the path leading to abundant life.
Gracious God, we want to be quick to offer you thanks and praise because your justice against our sin has landed fully on Christ. He is our substitute. Empower us to live lives of gratitude in response to your great love for us. We do that even now as we come to the table. For the glory of Jesus. God, you have gone to extraordinary lengths to rescue a people who are helpless, floundering about in our sin with no hope. You've broken into our lives. You've given us Jesus. Lord, we want to respond to that by offering our lives as a worship song to you. So, Lord, I pray that you would make our minds and our hearts attentive and receptive to your directing of us. And as we do so, Lord, we pray that all would be done to make much of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. We've concluded this series on Ecclesiastes. Life, like the book of Ecclesiastes, is perplexing. And we feel that every day. But one of the things I want to draw your attention to is the fact that God is the author of the life we find so vexing. We're not here because of an accident. We're here by design. God providentially has ruled over the details of human history in such a way that life is the way it is. But we also need to remember that our God is the redeemer of the broken parts of life that make it vexing, that make it perplexing. So where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to run? So as we conclude this morning, we're going to reaffirm the kind of God who's made us. We're going to reaffirm the kind of God who has redeemed us. So we can walk out of here knowing no matter how perplexing my life may be, I know that this God is good. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And God's people said, amen.